Welcome to Next Page. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. We've been on a podcast recording marathon marathon here, <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to like a little bit of a, a rest. But Reprieve, yes. But I also, you know, the weather is nice today. I mean, I'm sure I haven't actually gone outside, but so I'm sure it's oppressively hot, <laughs> as I say every time. But you know, now that it's officially August, now I can look forward to the next month being October or September. Oh my gosh. September. I've already jumped to October. You're already, you're already October. Oh, but my mind can at least go there, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. What have you been up to? Well, mostly a lot of podcast stuff, but yeah. some exciting news. Our air conditioning is being installed at the beer garden this week. So I am, yes. <laughs> Finally, thank God all of my employees have not gone on strike. And I thank you all for your faith in us as, <laughs> as owners of this restaurant. And I'm so sorry for what I've put you through. But yeah, that's like literally yeah, been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> been riding that high for a little bit. But what have you been up to? Oh, gosh. Well, so last night I actually performed in Broadway at the concert series at the Bourbon Room here in Los oh, Angeles. Yes. And we did a villains theme. Mm -hmm. And so they had me sing music of the night from Phantom of the Opera. But it was a very, very packed, sold out concert. Wonderful, wonderful run by this wonderful, my friend Marissa. And it, it's just, it was a wonderful group of artists. I actually got reunited with my leading lady from We Will Rock You national tour, Ooh, Ruby Lewis. Fun. We hadn't seen each other in almost 10 years. And it was just great to share a stage with her again. She's so talented. And, and that, that was, we were all talking about it last night. It was a very special group of art. There were only 11 of us. Yeah. And it was a very, very special group of people. And so it was just a very, yeah, cathartic, wonderful experience. And it was nice to perform in LA and not on a ship for a minute. <laughs> yeah. You, got to be, you weren't rocking back and forth. Exactly. You did mention that there is a picture of you from that concert on your story. And I'm thinking that you know, I think our audience wants to get to know us better. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I think I want to share that for everybody to see. And, oh, and just good. so y'all can see our everyday. Oh, yeah. No, y'all are going to like this. You were looking fierce. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. A different look completely. Yeah. Yeah. They had us dress in like this villain, sexy, I don't know, rocker vibe. And it was yeah. just a very, because I'm right now, I'm like a, my, my polo or whatever, you know, my Charleston, my Charleston best. Yeah. No, you definitely look very, I'll just say. Americana. <laughs> yes. You could definitely go do a round of golf with the boys at Absolutely. any point. Or work at a bank. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If really anything, the world is your oyster, but only Absolutely. so far. Exactly. Well, I am thrilled about today's guest, which I, I actually, when we talked about this off air, I was a little nervous because she's a pediatrician and I was like, I don't have children. Yeah. You don't but even... then I come to find out she is just, I learned so much about early childhood development and and trauma. And trauma, exactly. And how that can, I mean, you guys, you're going to love, love, love this podcast, especially moms and dads out there. You want to pay special attention to this uh, because there was a lot of interesting developments. She's uncovering a lot of, a lot of trauma-related research in how it relates to your children. So, And also you when you grow up. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And her name is Dr. Wendy Hunter. And would you please tell our audience a little bit about her? Of course. So Dr. Wendy Hunter got her bachelor's degree in human service studies at Cornell University, attended UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine, and did pediatrics residency at UC San Diego. She spent 10 years experiencing the fun and drama of working in a pediatric emergency department before she grew up and got a day job. Now as a primary care pediatrician in La Jolla, California, she helps parents understand why their kids do the weird things they do. Her special interest is in screening for adverse childhood experiences and incorporating trauma-informed care into the clinic. She has a 21-year-old daughter, a 16-year-old son, and an 18-year-old Ukrainian teen who has adopted their family. In her free time, she plays drums, volunteers as a master gardener, and hosts the podcast, The Pediatrician Next Door. So without further ado, we give you Dr. Wendy Hunter. All right, Dr. Wendy Hunter, thank you for coming on today. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm great. Thank you. Welcome to Next Page. We're so happy to have you on the program. Oh, I have so much to share. 
Yeah, we're so, we're so excited. <laughs> very, very thrilled. So just to go ahead and jump right in here, can you sort of give us a little bit of background about where you're from and what your childhood was like? Oh God, it's so boring. So I'll go real fast for my, <laughs> okay. for my childhood. I was born to an academic parent. So we moved, you know, to different universities, like we started out at MIT and then we went to Caltech and then Cornell and my upbringing was idyllic. You know, I have a mother and a father and a brother and we were perfect. I don't know. It's funny because I thought that I have no history of trauma and I really don't have any challenges from my lifetime, but it was not too long ago. My husband pointed out to me, he was like, you're always so scared to get injured and get sick. And and I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, you know, that's from that time you were sick. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I completely forgot about the two years that I had a mystery illness. So, you know, oh, when wow. I was 17 years old, yeah, <laughs> it's like not that big of a deal. And I forgot, but I think it does inform the rest of my thoughts and my life and my decisions and my fears and how I interpret the world. But yeah, when I was 17 years old on my birthday, I just suddenly became really sick, fatigued and muscle aches and memory loss. And it lasted two years and I didn't finish high school. I had to have a home teacher. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then, got that um, bad. Yeah, I know. I like I was in a wheelchair. It was crazy, but you know, wow. we couldn't find a diagnosis. And it was weird because I was like, I wish I had cancer because at least everyone would know what was wrong with me. But anyway, yeah. it turned out to be Lyme disease, which is totally oh, wow. treatable. And then I was treated and now I'm mostly good. Yeah. Yeah. It did inform my future. And, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. And so yeah. it obviously yeah. affects my everyday interactions with patients in terms of my empathy. Yeah. I can imagine. Cause I mean, I'm not a doctor and I am always slightly hypochondriatic. Is that a word? I don't <laughs> think so. But I'm always kind of like, if I hear about it, I'm like, <gasps> I probably have that. Or it's yeah. going to happen to me or what it's only a matter of time. So seeing, I don't know how you, my mom's a neonatologist and she's just always like, you probably don't, you're fine. Like just shut up about it. But right. So as a mother, that's how I am. I'm like, you're fine. Your toe yeah. fell off. It's fine. You don't need that one. Yeah. that You've got many others. Don't mm -hmm. worry about it. Well, yeah. So obviously you went on from overcoming that, which is awesome. I actually didn't know that you could treat Lyme disease that easily. So that's, that's pretty good news. But you went on to become a pediatrician. So we'd like you to tell us a little bit about your journey as a pediatrician and what led you to focus on kind of communicating the science of pediatric medicine to parents and healthcare professionals. Yeah, I did a pediatrics residency, obviously. And then when I left my residency, I was hired in the emergency department a children's hospital and as a primary care pediatrician working in the ER, which was an amazing opportunity. So I was there for 10 years and I became a very strong clinician. I just, I've seen everything. I mean, we could talk about anything and I can tell you about it. But what I really saw there, because I was not an emergency medicine physician, I was a pediatrician. So I see all these kids who use the emergency room for their primary care, basically. And so those are the kids who are hidden. They're the ones that aren't going to school they may not have a car to get to the doctor. There's this hidden population. And I realized that they weren't getting the primary care. They weren't getting the doctor visits that you and I get. You know, they don't go to the doctor for their annual tests. I mean, actually, most of us don't either, and we really should, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. I realized <laughs> that they needed us to come to them. Like you can't sit at the hospital and expect the neediest population to come to you for help. And so that's what really started me on this journey of all the different programs I've started and the projects that I've gotten involved with in terms of screening kids for social determinants of health is what we call it. And then literally going into their communities and giving health talks. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you obviously, you know, you now have a podcast, you have a blog and all that to get the information out, which I think is extremely important because I think it's overwhelming to some people. And like how you mentioned there is this subset of people that maybe they want to get treatment, but mm -hmm. you know, just aren't capable. So you have emphasized in your clinical and research work, the kind of impact of social determinants of health on pediatric care. Could you kind of share some insights into how these barriers affect children's healthcare experiences? Well, the first easiest like low-hanging fruit here is the kids that would come into the emergency room with really basic problems like eczema that didn't get any care. So it gets totally out of hand. 
You know, so this mm. is like a kid who mom and dad don't have a car. And so the only time they can come to the doctor of any sort is when they take the bus or if they borrow a car. And so, you know, they're like months into their very minor illness, like eczema, and now it's infected. It's all over their body when we could have just fixed it and nipped it in the bud or like ear infections that get ruptured or a kid mm. who never got their sinus infection treated and now they have a brain abscess. I mean, that stuff is oh, still happening in America. One of the most interesting stories I had recently was, and I can tell you more about how we're screening for adverse childhood experiences among our That'd population. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to come back to that. But what happened was, I'll tell you now. Why not? So yeah, so one of the things we're doing now is that in our primary care clinic, we have this questionnaire and it asks about all the hard things that have happened to you before you turned 18. And we're using that as a screen just to say like, hey, I noticed some hard things have happened to you. Do you think it's affecting your health now? And then opens up these conversations. And we're asking kids as young as four and five years old these questions. Oh, wow. So yeah. And now we've also even started asking parents about themselves when they bring in an infant. So at the six-month well-child visit, we're asking parents because when you've had hard things happen to you, there's a whole long list of all the hard things that can happen to you, you know, abuse and violence in the neighborhood. Those things affect your parenting. So we're talking about that. So I had this girl come in and she is now, she's 18 years old. And she came in to see me because she was having a lot of depression. And she has seen our doctors for 18 years with all kinds of problems, stomach aches and headaches and lots of complaints. And so on this one visit, I gave her this questionnaire for the very first time in her life. And it's 17 questions. And she had a score of 14. You know, This girl oh has gosh. had every horrible thing happen to her. And I know it was extremely therapeutic when I said to her, you know, you've had some hard things happen to you. Do you think this is what's affecting you now? And she's like, you know, no one ever asked me. And that was it. That's sort of the end of it. She's she's like, yeah, <laughs> that's the crux of my depression. You know, it, it's not chemical. It's that I had to deal with all this and I've never talked to anybody about it. So it was just interesting and kind of embarrassing that, you know, her pediatrician had never gotten to these issues. But I think a lot of people don't realize that when you're abused as a child or if you simply don't feel loved in your home, you're going to grow up with effects from that. And that affects your physical health. So that's what I'm yeah. working on now. <laughs> No, that's awesome. This sort of leads me into my next question, actually. Your focus on sort of trauma-enforced care is pretty fascinating in itself, but how do you integrate that approach into your primary care clinic? And have you seen any benefits and like, what have you observed for patients and their families? Oh my gosh. This is a long story. Should I share the long okay. story? I'm going to try to make it. Got time. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So we started out with just screening. So we call it screening for ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. But now we've realized, yeah, that that's not the whole story. And that when you treat someone in the clinic, there's so much more to it. So we had this patient recently and I realized that no clinic is practicing trauma-informed care. No businesses. I mean, think about how mean the people are to you at the front desk at like I know. anywhere you go. <laughs> Preach. Amen. It's that dramatic in and of itself. I don't know how we got to this point, but it's like we always assume that the person on the other side of the desk from us is their enemy. You know, like mm -hmm. you just are going to cause me more paperwork or whatever. So trauma-informed care, and we need to incorporate it into schools. You know, we've got these kids, like I'm going to go off on all kinds of tangents here, but the kids Please that do. act up in schools and are bullies, they're hurt at home. Those kids didn't just all of a sudden become mean. So if we can treat even juvenile offenders and bullies at school with a different approach. Stop asking, what did you do? But ask, what's happened to you? Mm. You know, that's very like, important. How did you get to this point? Yeah. So what's happened to you? So we had a patient a couple of weeks ago and this I think is the best story I have to explain what trauma-informed care is. And I'll try and make it a short story, but there was a teenager having a seizure right outside the door of our clinic on a bench by herself. So someone found her and we went outside and we're looking at this girl like, where did you come from? So then my front desk person says, you know, there's a mother inside the clinic right now who keeps coming in and out of the waiting room. She's coming out from her son's clinic room and going outside and then coming back in. And I bet she's the mom. So I went in and found her. And indeed, she was the mother. Her daughter was laying outside having a seizure. And her mom had known that she had been having seizures for about a year. And her seizures are brought on when she runs. 
So what happened was this mom, she's actually homeless. She was bringing her son to our office to get care for his depression because she'd finally gotten insurance for him. And she was on the bus and they knew they were going to be late for their appointment. So they called our clinic and the mom knew if you're late, you can't be seen. And she knows she has to be seen. Our front office said to her, well, if you're 15 minutes late, you can't be seen. So she Mm -hmm. ran. And then when she ran, her daughter had a seizure and she had no other choice but to like leave her outside because her daughter doesn't have health insurance. So, I mean, we like absolutely failed here. So trauma-informed care is when someone calls your office, you say, oh, we understand. Get here when you can. We're still here for you, whether it's true or not. But still like having that family focus, like understanding where another person is coming from and giving them the benefit of the doubt and surrounding them with support. You know, so like our waiting room can't have signs about like, you're going to be deported if you don't have insurance. (laughs) Like we just need to be cognizant of the language that we use. And it's, I mean, it's impossible to like cover all your bases, but that's the story. Well, I think that's beautiful on so many levels because if you just think about the cycle somebody can get into, if they don't have the resources to begin with. And then like, just even you're talking about like eczema, both my kids had eczema and it could get out of control in a matter of days. And I'm like lathering all these creams and taking my kids in every week because this blister has done this or that. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine if something hasn't been treated for a full year or more. I mean, even dental, that's dentist office are traumatizing to me. Yeah. Point blank. I just, I can't in, in general. So I can't imagine for people that don't have the access to those things, like the amount of pain that they're going through and then add in the, you know, the emotional aspect, like that's crazy. I don't think a lot of people think about that. Did y'all end up treating the girl who was having a seizure, even though she didn't have insurance? Yeah. I mean, the story ends up really positive in that we called them 911 I mean, and she got transported yeah. to the hospital. I was going to say, did anyone go get this girl? <laughs> She's just out here <laughs> we just watched her. And we're yeah. talking about, oh, this is really bad trauma, but nobody went. <laughs> yeah. I wrote it up while I was standing there, submitted a blog post. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is, this oh is bad, God. but you know. <laughs> yeah. And well, when you go to the hospital, you get insurance. So now she has insurance, but it's like, and no one ever asked and the mom never thought to say to anybody in our clinic, Hey, can you help me get insurance for my other kid? Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. And I've never really thought about getting insurance for one child, but not the other and mm-hmm. how that would impact everything. Especially so, one, if one is prone to having seizures. Yes. <laughs> Do you help your kid with depression or the one with seizures? Yeah, I know. Is that though like a block for somebody to get insurance though, if they have a history of seizures like with that? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. All right. Well, so just an interesting choice then I feel like, but you know, that was probably- (laughs) a lot of paperwork, you know? It is. Yeah, exactly. And if you're homeless or you don't have, I don't know, a printer, Mm -hmm. there's just so many small blocks. And I feel like that there are, I get very upset when my dentist is very aggressive about if you are five minutes late, you've lost your spot. And it's like, I'm sorry. Like, do you not experience the real world? Does nobody here experience the real world ever? I have a full-time job. I have two kids. My kid's homesick. I can't come on that day. Like, yeah, you need to be understanding. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's great that you focus on that. And I do want to kind of go back to the adverse childhood experiences, because I think that this is a really important topic for our listeners in particular, because I don't think a lot of people realize that the ACE screening in itself can be a very informative tool for your doctors or for yourself to understand your likelihood of developing depression, your likelihood of developing addiction, your likelihood of suicidal thoughts, those kind of things. So I would love if you could kind of expand on some examples of what an adverse childhood experience is and how other people can take the test and maybe understand how that might be affecting their lives now. Yeah, it's easy to find the tool online there's a website and you can just look up a score. I think it's called know your score know your number, something like that uh-huh. um, is the website. And for adults, we ask these 10 questions and it's called the ACEs or adverse childhood experiences with a kids. It's an expanded questionnaire called the pearls. That's the pediatric ACEs and related life event screener. So it adds on these other social determinants of health. And I can tell you what those are. But it all comes from this study that was done with two researchers, one from the CDC and one from Kaiser. And I think it was in the early Mm. 90s when they did this. And it was over the course of about a year. And they asked 
something like 17,000 patients or something to list all the things that had happened to them. And then also they correlated it with health outcomes. So have you had a heart attack? Do you have diabetes? Do you have asthma? Do you have depression, anxiety? And they found that adults who tested four or higher on the ACE questionnaire, very highly correlated with long-term negative health outcomes like hypertension and asthma. And I'm going off on a tangent again here, but what's really interesting about it is that you would assume that someone who had bad things happen to them are going to then make bad life choices, right? They're going to smoke and drink and have abusive relationships or whatever. And then that's going to lead to the negative outcomes like diabetes and heart disease and strokes, but that's not true. So they took a subset of those people who had high A scores who didn't have negative life factors, like they didn't smoke, they didn't drink, they were healthy, nice people. And they had the same negative health outcomes, the same rate of strokes because your physiology changes. When bad things happen to you as a kid, it changes the way your genes are transcribed. It changes the way that your hypothalamic pituitary axis acts. It changes the way cortisol surges in your body and doesn't surge. And those are the things that cause you to have strokes, high blood pressure, diabetes, depression later on, not the smoking and drinking necessarily. So that was the big outcome from this study. Hold on. (laughs) I knew this was going to happen with that. (laughs) Wait a minute. Oh, I can go on and on about this. Yes, let's talk. (laughs) Wait a minute. So the gag is if you are a child and you have been subjected to trauma, that changes basically things in your brain, which changes your immune system, which then basically that's why you have the, you develop these conditions later in life. It's not because of the external things you put in your body. It's Mm -hmm. what happens internally from your environment. Yeah, that's exactly right. I know you got to, you need a second to think about it. Your, your endocrine system changes. We have tons and tons and tons of research studies that show this is true. So if you take two teenagers and they did a study on this and they were measuring their skin impedance in response to like pain or something and kids who had experienced trauma, they have a very different physiologic response than kids who haven't. So we know that your nervous system has changed. We can see that the methylation patterns on the outside of your DNA, which are these tiny little flags, they're little molecules that are flags on the outside of your DNA, and they say, transcribe this molecule, don't transcribe this molecule. Those flags move around in response to trauma, and it's even passed to the next generation. So that's how we know there is a physiologic basis to the genetic inheritance of trauma. But yes, your immune system changes. Your immune responses change in response to trauma. So you talked about asthma earlier. Can that be developed from trauma? Yeah. There are much higher rates of asthma among people who have have experienced ACEs. First, there's a disconnect between the research that's being done and what's being reported in the news because it's a really hard concept to wrap your brain around. And then the other thing I want to say is that I think that doctors are starting to see this in a different light, and that is I mean, you've heard of the germ theory, right? Forever ago, we thought it was ridiculous that people were saying there were these little floating, invisible things that were making us sick and like, that is dumb. But it turns out like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what's happening. So yeah. this is the new germ theory. There is a hidden influence on our health. And I think a lot of people would poo-poo it right now. Like, oh yeah, things that happened to you that were bad as a kid are going to affect your health when you're adult. Ha, ha, ha. Well, yeah, it turns out there is a physiologic basis for this. So that's what we're finding. This is akin to the germ theory and it's going to change medicine. We're going to start asking what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. Oh, I love that because it's holistic for one. Mm -hmm. So like you're looking at the mind-body connection, but it's also what happened to you before, not just are you going through stress right now? Have you been through stress in the past few months? Like, I think that doctors are starting to be more question or or ask more about depressive things or anxiety, but to go back to the beginning, Mm -hmm. to me, it makes so much sense, but I can see why people would be like, well, what does it matter? You seem like a well-adjusted person, but, you know, in a way we found on this podcast a lot, talking to a lot of people 
people bury things in the recesses of their minds. So it comes out sideways in like all kinds of ways. So the fact that we now know it's changing your genes or changing how they Mm -hmm. express themselves. Okay. Well, this explains a lot. Your depression and as adult is going to be different whether you've experienced something in the past or not. Oh, wow. Can you expand on that? If you're depressed and you've had nothing really traumatic happen to you, you might be pretty easy to treat. You know, give them some Prozac that might respond very well. Someone who has a history of trauma, they could actually have a very physiologically different type of depression. And oftentimes we find that people who have depression as a result of PTSD or traumatic experiences, they don't respond to SSRI medications like Prozac, Lexapro, et cetera. They need a very different type of therapy. And we know what therapies do work. What are those? So trauma-based therapy, so trauma-based yeah. CBT, something like that is going to okay. work much better. And there are studies that show that if you give someone who has a trauma history for their depression, you give them Zoloft and trauma-based therapy, it actually doesn't work as well as just doing trauma-based therapy. Oh, wow. It's kind of weird, but because in most depression, you need therapy and an SSRI and it works beautifully. Yeah. And hand-in-hand yeah. hand it works, but not in the case of trauma. So that's, you know, we have to be screening people for a history. Yeah. I mean, I've been on CBT therapy and on bupropion for mm-hmm. years and it, it it changed my life. I mean, it completely changed a whole trajectory. So I completely understand that in used in combination, it definitely can help people. But it's interesting to hear that sometimes it all they need is therapy. Sometimes. Yeah. And the same for ADHD. I've found that a lot of the kids that come into my clinic who have attention problems, mm-hmm. if they don't respond to ADHD medications and kids with ADHD respond very, very well, then I know I'm like, wait, what happened to you? And oftentimes their inattention is hypervigilance from years of just a chaotic home. And that's Ah. not fixed with ADHD medications. Yeah. How do you approach that with the parents when you know something's going on? I'm really straightforward. (laughs) Are you really? Okay. Yeah. I want to hear the Dr. Wendy Hunter voice. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I can do it now, but parents want to share. They really, really appreciate when you care about the other things that happen in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh yeah. I'm sure. I would as a parent. I mean, especially if I'm not aware of what Mm -hmm. anything that's been going on. We've kind of touched on this in some podcasts of, we interviewed someone about basically having sexual assault and how that you can spot the signs basically mm-hmm. when they become withdrawn or they'll share with like maybe a friend that's their age or something, but they're not going to come up to you, but they, they'll start being kind of depressive and not themselves. And that whole episode kind of had me a little bit like mm-hmm. buzzing about making sure getting that my kids, that that will never happen to them and that I'll just keep them in this bubble. So I guess in a way is like, do you guys have any kind of preventative measures that you do to try to make sure that kids don't experience these kind of things? Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you asked that because I don't want to skip the protective factors. So the other part of the science is that we do know that, well, the science part is anything that releases happy hormones like oxytocin, for example, is protective. And what we have found in studies is that the most protective factor is when a child has one at least one single loving caregiver who's consistent. And that is ultimately protective. So I don't know if Todd, if you think back to who you've had, but a very close friend of mine, she had a grandmother and all the horrible things that happened to her grandmother was always there, always supportive. And she's a wonderful human now and is doing great, but you need one human who loves you, who you feel loves you unconditionally. Yeah. And there's lots more. We've found that all the self-care things in the world that you do are very protective. So we call this science toxic stress. That's the Mm. science of, of the physiologic effects on your body from past trauma. And so what we know is preventative against toxic stress are self-care things. So literally like getting exercise, taking a walk, spending time with friends, volunteering in your community, getting good sleep, eating healthy foods. So all of those things, actually, each one of them has a known mechanism behind how it helps. But the caregiver is the most important one. Well, you have mentioned in the past that your podcast and social media presence sort of aim to make health information more accessible to parents. And so how do you ensure that complex medical topics are communicated effectively to sort of a broader audience? We were talking earlier about this needs to be blasted on Good Morning America and CNN. (laughs) So, you know, sort of 
How do you ensure that that happens? Yeah. First, I try to reach people where they're at is the big theme. So as much as I don't want to be on Instagram, really, that is a (laughs) good place to reach people. And I do have a number of people who will send me direct messages, just sharing things they're worried about. And I do like to speak on topics that I would consider sort of the the doorknob moments. So meaning I'm in my clinic room and we're all done. And then I reach for the doorknob and then they're like, Ooh, I have one more thing I wanted to ask you. It's those embarrassing questions, those questions that you don't really know if you can ask. And that's why I call myself the pediatrician next door. So I'm just that approachable person. That's like kind of your friend and you trust her advice, but she actually does know what she's talking about. You know, not the like mm-hmm. dumbass neighbor who's like, Oh, you should yeah. try <laughs> apple cider vinegar for your trauma. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that works. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, so that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> how do you sort of handle the widespread misinformation though that's out there? Like if people come with apple cider vinegar for your yeah. trauma, like how does that? <laughs> I tend to try to ignore it. I don't think you'll ever find me doing a stitch against a person that I'm like, that is dumb. I just would rather approach it with a really positive, like here's a real nugget that you can lock onto. I want parents to watch me on Instagram or listen to my podcast and be like, that's awesome. I got to tell people about this. Yeah. Or have those right. moments where you're like, ooh, I always try to have one of those moments in my episodes where you're like, yeah. ooh, cool. I love your your podcast because ooh. as a parent, it's all very palatable. Like it's something mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not overwhelming amount of information. It doesn't like freak you out. It's in fact, I feel like very calming. Oh, Laura, I appreciate that so much. Oh, no, I I really do. I mean, as somebody who's also, I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. So it's those very formative Mm -hmm. years and you're just constantly afraid that you're screwing it all up. And, you know, you have a very comforting message, I feel like with a lot of, because, you know, a lot of parents just kind of come out of left field with a random worry they heard from their great aunt who said, oh, you know, if you do this, they're going to end up becoming a killer or something. So I really appreciate that you have the podcast, The Pediatrician Next Door. What are some of the most common questions or concerns parents really tend to have about their children's health you address? Oh my God. I get so many penis questions. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I cannot even believe. I'm always like, I got to tell you, no one cares what a man's penis looks like. Like we really, I don't think we do. And so these parents who come in and show me their like four month old's penis, I'm like, let's let it grow and then judge. But I can't believe like, that's like 20 to 30% 30 of the questions are. Wow. And then, you know, like maybe another 30% are like poop, you know, like all Mm -hmm. the different colors and like constipation is, I mean, I just did an episode, maybe you heard it on bedwetting and constipation Mm -hmm. and the link because that's super common. I mean, most of the texts that I get are pictures of rashes. So rashes, but yeah, there is so much external judgment on mothers in particular, maybe fathers too, and the guilt that moms have. And so yeah, every episode, I want you to leave having laughed at least one time, gone, Ooh, that's cool. One time. And I want you to leave saying like, I'm doing something right. I'm a good mom. I got this. Yeah. I guess we were kind of talking about this before, but I was telling you about how my daughter is basically just, she's at that age. And my mom says I was the same way as when I was about her age of basically wanting much more attention and doesn't want me to work or do a podcast or even if she's in school, even though she's not around, she like wants to know that I'll just be there right when she gets yeah. out. And I don't think there is an any worse kind of mom guilt than something directly out of your child's mouth. So I guess I'd be kind of interested to know how parents can kind of handle that and or am I messing her up by not, you know, following her demands? To you are just not messing by. her up and you need to be that example. But you're right. Okay. So from day one of birth, basically all kids want is your attention. And if they're not getting your positive attention, they'll start getting your attention for the negative things they do. Two-month-old, four-month-old, eight-month-old, 12-month-old, seven-year-old, you just have to like praise them constantly for the things you like them to be doing because that's what they want to hear. If they're not hearing it, then they'll start, you know, like pulling all the Tupperware out of the drawers and pulling all the toilet paper off the wall and like hitting people. So, Mm -hmm. but the right answer is that you need to set your good example and work. Later, your child will grow up. My daughter's 21 now and she works hard because she watched me work hard. 
and you give her attention. You give her plenty of attention. (laughs) And with those older kids, the key is like have good food at home and be in the kitchen if you can after school, even if you're there for a half hour, that's and and keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Okay. Because they'll start talking to you if you just like, just shut up, you know, like don't tell them what to do. Just listen. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, and like repeat back what they say. Like if your daughter's like, Marty was so mean to me. You go, oh, Marty was mean to you. Don't tell her what to do about Marty. Just repeat back. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That's oh. Like, and it keeps them talking and then they don't feel judged and they don't want your advice. They just want your attention. Right now she's kind of in this age of, I think a lot of parents is very divisive of if you are, you know, like co-sleeping and how much you should kind of give in to their not wanting to stay in their bed or keeping their door closed or things like that. But, you know, right now she's in this phase of, I'm so scared. I'm so scared of going to sleep. And it's hard to determine kind of if she's legitimately actually scared or if it's kind of a delay tactic for not going to bed. That's so funny. I actually do have an episode coming up in about four weeks on this very topic from a sleep coach. Oh, actually, sleep coaches can help you with that kind of bedtime battle, even in a seven-year-old. And oh, really? Or sleep consultants, I guess they're called. Yeah, they're really, really helpful. So the bed sharing, the sleep consultant told me at that age, it's you enjoy as a mom to co-sleep, but not every night because that's too much. So no, I'm the opposite. I don't want to do it at all. She's aggressive. She's assaults me in her sleep. (laughs) She starfishes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. She literally punches me. She punched her in the face the other (laughs) morning. And it was was, I gave in one (laughs) night and I was like, now I'm just like, I'm sorry, we did it. And it it's not happening again. Cause and she's like, I promise I'll sleep on the the very tippy edge. Oh yeah. Good luck while you're comatose. Uh Exactly. Exactly. Um, So the advice that this woman gave me, she was like, just have your sleep overnight, like Tuesdays. That's it. Tuesdays are sleep overnight. But drawing boundaries. But if you don't want her in there at all, I would definitely get a sleep consultant. I don't know as much as they do about sleep, but okay. I didn't know there was a sleep consultant mm-hmm. that existed in the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's that's a great, great job for stay-at-home moms too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like and especially important when they're kind of transitioning from that crib to the big boy bed or or yeah. anything, or even just going from being in a bassinet in your room to having their own room or something yeah. like that. Because a lot of kids will do anything. To just get you challenging though, because you have to think about every stage developmentally. So if you've got a four or five year old who has problems, they're still in a magical thinking developmental stage. So everything to them is magic. So you can like literally get like hairspray and call it monster spray and spray it around their room. They're like, okay, I'm not scared anymore. A seven year old is now logical. So that's a totally different problem than a four year old, different than a two year old. So you got to think about it developmentally. Yeah. We've had to actually like, there's a particular stuffy. It was just like a stuff we call stuffies, but stuffed animals, like a snake. And she just decided the other night, she's like, nope, he's a problem. He's got to go. He cannot be in this room because I'm pretty sure he's going to kill me. And then we're also battling this belief that there are mice in the vents and they're going to come out and get her. And no matter what I like logic that I put forth, because I used to be able to say, no, look, I, I did a magic spell or mm-hmm. I, yeah. know, I have a potion and I would like do a little potion on her wrists and she'd be like, okay, I'm perfect. Everything. Mommy's magic. She's a, she's a witch. So this is great. But mm-hmm. now it's you may like be having some anxiety now too. And you may want to take her to the pediatrician and have her evaluated because this okay. might be about something else. That's a yeah. lot of bedtime anxiety that she's expressing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's good to know. This is, this is why you're, we're just so happy you exist. It's amazing. Dr. Hunter, when you're answering questions on your podcast, how do you strike a balance between the science of medicine and the realities of parenting? Oh my God, you're so funny. Isn't that my like tagline? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to, trying to plug you. Trying to pro- the answer listen, is very adeptly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. It's so hard because I read these journal articles. I literally do this like primary science research and then I have to try and put it into a language of parents. And I want it to be applicable to your daily life. So finding that translation from bench science, you know, lab science to how this affects your parenting, that that's what I'm trying to do. And I think I do it effectively. Yeah. No, <laughs> I try I not to use find... big words. I sometimes yeah, say neurotransmitter. I don't know. I think that people should probably at this point figure out what a neurotransmitter is. That's a good educational tool. Right. Like I tend to think, yeah. My producer always, I'm like, was that too complex? And he's like, no, I think, you know, most people are that smart. 
Yeah. Or they should be. This should have taught them, you know, I think. And it's important to have some of that nomenclature to take to other doctors, you know, I think not they have to, but just that I think people, my experience, doctors have taken me more seriously when I've done my research. And yeah. yeah, And I'm not just like making wild. Mm -hmm. I'm not just like help. There's some thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. Yeah, (laughs) that is what I that is what I do. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, you obviously cover a wide range of topics, as we've kind of discussed as far as your podcast. Are there any episodes or topics that you feel like have really resonated with your audience, or that have kind of picked up a lot of traction? Yeah, it's really surprising because it's some of the times it's the ones that I'm like, oh, that was a terrible episode. I think the one on multivitamins was really good just because I think everybody thinks they need multivitamins and no one needs multivitamins. But I really? took 30 minutes on the podcast to explain why. <laughs> um, but okay. I think that applies to everyone. You know, I think the episodes that are popular are the ones that you're like, oh, this applies to my kids and me. And then I had someone the other day say, oh, I loved your episode, your black socks episode. I'm like, what are they talking about? And it turned out to be the episode I did on advocating for kids, literally advocating with your congressman and, and in your community. Because I didn't think that episode would get much traction, but I think that did speak to people. And the black socks situation was that there was a a school and next door to the school, they were doing construction and they were digging up asphalt and the asphalt was literally raining on the school and the kids were coming home with black socks. And so that was something that like, that's the health of children, but I can't do anything about that in my clinic. Like they were all having asthma attacks. And the answer Mm. is like advocating and getting them to stop doing the work while the school's in session. So yeah. Sometimes seen, I feel like people that do that are like, well, they're being a Karen or something like that. Right. But right. If anybody's going to call me a Karen about anything, it's going to be about my kids. Like I'm I like, won't no, care. call me mama bear. Cause that's yeah, like, I will come at you. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really seen the switch in me go so fast than when something has to do with my kids. So definitely yeah. important. I'm just I'm curious. What is like the biggest misconception or myth about children's health? Like, what is like the biggest thing that you see across the board? Or even some of them. Yeah. The one that pediatricians laugh about, like it's like an inside joke and we think is hilarious that no one else would think is like when the joke is, they're just little adults. And we're like, they're not just little adults. Like it's so much more complex. It's so dumb. (laughs) But yeah, pediatricians (laughs) think it's hilarious when people think they're little adults because they're not. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that would be obvious, but maybe that's, you know, just me being naive. But who is thinking that these tiny people are just miniature adults? Surgeons. I don't know. Like surgeons who are like, oh, just give oh my IV fluids and some Tylenol, you know. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. That's scary. Your body processes and even like the size of your body is so different when you're little. Like a little kid's head is 10 times bigger in proportion to their body than an adult's is. So yeah, like, they're not the so same I- people. I had this conversation with my daughter yesterday where I was told at some point in my life that you're born of the same size eyeballs and that your head just eventually grows like around them. Is that true? Ooh, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I think it's largely true. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I didn't lie to her. That, that was oh, good. No, that was Sometimes I'm like, mm, I kind of just told her something she might go share, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you're a mom yourself, has your experience as a parent influenced your perspective and approach as a pediatrician or, or vice versa? I mean, for sure. Yeah. it's. I can't even imagine being a pediatrician without having kids, but I know there are people who are. When I tell you it's okay that your child's vomiting constantly, I know because it happened to me. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and my daughter was the one who I had to lock in her room so she wouldn't come out and she vomited and had a bloody nose and I found her next to the door in the room. So from that standpoint, yes. Yeah. My parenting has been really interesting. I have this 21 year old daughter now. It's so fun to have adult kids. And then my son's oh. 16. And then we have this kid who's adopted us. He's now 18, but he's from Ukraine and he's a Ukrainian refugee. So that's been a really interesting dynamic too, is just experiencing the world through his eyes has, has continued my parenting journey is that I see another new perspective. Mm-hmm. On- of course. Like he kind of doesn't care about anything, which is pretty interesting. I would just think that as a pediatrician, you would kind of be more worried about everything, but it doesn't seem like you're that kind of parent. There's definitely a period that we all go through where we think our kids have cancer. Every pediatrician is like, my four-year-old has cancer from every sign. And it's funny too, because a lot of my patients, uh, the parents are doctors 
And it's so funny because they'll call oh, wow. me like, will you order a CBC? Because my kid has bruises. And I'm like, <laughs> no, your kid doesn't need a blood count, but I do it anyway, just because I know mentally, you know, we've learned about every single disease, but you definitely reach a point where you're like, I've seen way worse than this. You're fine. Like your liver laceration is going to heal, babe, you know, which is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's kind of leads me to my next kind of question is what kind of advice would you have for parents who may feel overwhelmed or anxious about their child's health and well-being? Oh gosh, they're not alone. I bet a lot of us get into these little silos where we sit at home and we worry and you have friends you can talk to and and grandparents and your pediatrician is not going to bite you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Hopefully. That's one of my first questions. Are you going to bite me? Right. <laughs> bite, bite me or my child? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that. well, that's good. I mean, I think it's in general, like what everybody wants to hear with almost everything. I have a question going off script a little bit question. When you're in the room with the child and the parent, and you know that the child wants to tell you something without the parent sitting there, are you allowed to ask the parent to leave the room? I don't know what what the rules are for, but are you, if you can sense this child needs to talk to me and tell me something, are you direct and say, you know, I really want to speak to this child alone? Or I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So we make it a practice that over age 12 at every well visit, we ask the parents to leave the room just to check in. Yeah. So it's sick visits, not necessarily because we get 10 minutes for a sick visit. So that one's tougher. But in those cases, we use our spidey sense. But I don't think I've really had a lot of pushback from parents when I said, can we talk alone? And those are some really interesting conversations. Yeah. yeah. Can you sort of expand on that? Is there one that comes to mind or a couple that come to mind that you're like, I remember that and that really, I'm glad I asked. Most of the time, if the patient shares something surprising, it has to do with either gender identity or being gay or things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I had a patient recently, I just, if I just want to take this kid home. So he's 15, I think. And he doesn't feel, he lives in both parents' houses, splits time, splits time between mom and dad's house. And he doesn't feel loved in either house. And so then I talked to him alone while his dad was there and he told me that he prefers feminine pronouns and identifies as female. And I still call him a he because he doesn't want his parents to know. Mm. So I referred him to the, our, we have a clinic called gender affirming care, which is phenomenal, of course, but they can't even reach out to this kid because they can't call him and he can't get transportation to the clinic. Mm. So, I mean, he's, totally alone, except he knows that I know. And I, I try to touch base with him and I call him sometimes and leave messages. I don't know if he's getting them, but that was something that came out when I asked his parent to leave the room. Do you think the parent from your judgment would not be accepting of that? I think in this situation, the parent wouldn't believe the kid. It's the kind of person that's like, oh, I'm so open and I would accept anybody, but then in his own kid, would be like, yeah, he's full of shit. Like he's not really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a phase. It's a phase. Yeah. So that's what I think would happen. That's another thing. Phases. Mm-hmm. When a parent says, is this a phase? <laughs> I mean, how are you supposed to I mean, sometimes to know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, yeah. yeah. How often though do you feel like you see something like that that really is a phase? You know, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, can't tell. I'm so confused because I do have this other, I mean, I have lots and lots of patients who identify as other genders. And honestly, like I try to keep up, but I don't even understand all of the terminology and all the genders. So I I ask you, you know, I'm in the community and I, (laughs) I'm still confused. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, I don't know, isosexual, asexual, non I don't even know. But so I'll ask them like, okay, so what does that mean to you? And I can be like the dumb old lady who's like, can you explain this to me? (laughs) Sometimes I think of it as a transition. Like right now I'm identifying as the other gender, but actually I'm my gender, but I'm gay and I didn't realize it. So sometimes it's sort of like a transition identity. Okay. Yeah. Figuring it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we need to be gentle in that way. Well, have you ever had a child, a really, really young child, like younger than 12, say I'm a boy, I'm a girl. We have like this wonderful patient, I think, and I can't remember which if they're a girl that's now a boy, I can't remember, but the child is five or six and identifies as the other gender. And the parents are so supportive and understanding and have just like made the switch. So there are those families too. Wow. And it, I mean, I think this is like legit. Yeah. 
Yeah. I love this, the gender affirming care clinic. That is like so Mm -hmm. right up there with the trauma informed. So that's in San Diego. Okay. Awesome. And they help with things like, you know, because the kids will come in and they're wearing a binder on their chest and I'm like, I don't think you're wearing that right. And also it probably hurts. Can we get you a better binder? So like they literally know like the best brands and how to wear it and being able to halt or like pause puberty so that you have more time to make your decisions. I'm sorry. What is a binder? Oh, to keep your breasts flat. Yeah. So because you don't want your breasts to show. Oh. Yeah. You wouldn't bind. You don't need to bind. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think. I think you're good. No. We're good. I think you're good. The most interesting thing that I've only witnessed in pediatrics is that I've had a couple of patients who are like 17, 18 years old who come and tell me that they are... I don't know, not interested in boys or girls. I don't even know what that's called. Sorry. Asexual. Asexual. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so then this one patient, I was like, oh, wait, I'm sorry. You're not asexual. You've been on Prozac since you were 14. And one of the side effects is not being interested in sex. Like that is the side effect. And so in an adult male, they're just going to not want to have sex. But in a 14-year-old who's a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, they've never really been interested in another person because of the medication, not because they're asexual. Yeah. So that was oh, that was interesting for me to explain to this girl. She was like, "Oh, I think you might be right." <laughs> like, not because I'm not gay. Like, she's like, "I guess that's right." So yeah, yeah, that's how it manifests, <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, but so, what I was going to say before that yeah. I forgot is that, like, in moms who feel like they're doing everything wrong, I found too, like, that when you are very honest and you share that 5% of stuff that you don't share with anybody else. Most of the time, if you talk to a friend, another mom, anybody, when they respond, you're always going to find a connection and be so surprised that when you share vulnerably about something, you're going to get a response that makes you feel so much more connected and understood. Yeah, I find it very like necessary that I have my kind of core group of friends that are all moms and we mm-hmm just vent and or say things like, okay, well, my child was biting people. Yeah. Be vulnerable. Share those insecure moments. Mm -hmm. I think we all are just very like open and that makes it so much better. Like just even just to get it out is one thing, but then also to feel like, oh, well, we had a similar problem with that, you know, two years ago and that, you know, we found these things worked and these things didn't, but just to have somebody to actually say like your kid's not a bad yeah. kid or, you know, there's a you know that- basis for that too, which is really interesting. Okay. Here's my example taught of me using science, right. <laughs> to connect to others. Yeah. Is that we found that, you know, how, when you like get upset at something about something and you go into this fight or flight, we actually have found yes. that it's, it's fight, flight, or affiliate. Yeah. When your cortisol gets up and you're like running from the bear or upset about your child or whatever it is, as a human, we have this innate sense to either stay and fight mama bear style or just avoid the situation altogether. Or the third option is to affiliate, meaning like connect with others, because that's where we can find the solution to our problem that initiated the response in the first place. So fight, flight, or affiliate. Mm -hmm. What about the moms or dads that are afraid if they do share that their child is biting someone or whatever, they're Mm -hmm. afraid of the judgment or they're afraid that they're going to be viewed as a bad parent. And then somebody says, I think it's something going on at home because that child is biting. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you say to those parents that are, you still say share? Oh yeah. Because screw those people who are going to judge me back. You know, they're the ones who lose in this situation because they're hiding something too. Those are the families that look perfect and then they get divorced and fall apart and have no money. (laughs) (laughs) and then they can't get can't get care but Mm -hmm. you know i i think that that, that's a really i'm not snarky (laughs) yeah i think the thing that saved me early on as far as not being extremely neurotic about stuff is to just kind of just regular neurotic not extremely neurotic yeah yeah not extreme Uh just just slightly neurotic but that you know at a certain point it's like if you worried what everybody thought all the time about your parenting, it's impossible. You don't even have time to do that. So, you know, I know yeah. there are people that do, but I mean, at a certain point, it's like, we're not the same person. We're not the same family. We're not, you know. Yeah, screw you. Yeah, exactly. You like turning 40 is the best because you just like don't care anymore. And I'm oh like, God, yeah, I'm like so close. I, I turned 40 
last year mm-hmm. and I have zero fucks. Like, yeah. right. <laughs> you're so just liberating. at that point in life. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think I was stop a- comparing yourself to other people. Like, just don't Constantly. Who cares? Okay. Yeah. Who cares? Mm-hmm. You can't take it with you. And those people, my mother always said, if they don't know your last name and they don't know your family and they don't know your other friends, they don't matter. Oh my God, I love yeah. that. <laughs> That's my new mantra. They, I don't know. On a side tangent, when I was in New York, my mentor was dear friends with the actress Sandy Duncan. And we were all sitting around for Thanksgiving dinner one day in New York. And we were talking about how annoying people were in New York and how, and then she just said, it got really quiet. And she goes, you know, people, so overrated. <laughs> Sandy Duncan said that? <laughs> Sandy Duncan said that at that Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner. Right. And I was like, you know what? Truer words were never spoken. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so obnoxious, but also helpful yes. if they're a pediatrician <laughs> that's next door. So exactly. We just had such a good time talking to you this afternoon and can't recommend the, the pediatrician next door enough. I think we could delve into so many more intense or, mm-hmm. or deep topics. I'd love to learn more about the ACE screening and, and I'll have all the, we'll put all the links in the show notes to, to that for everybody. But we do have a tradition on this show, which is a question of the day. So mm-hmm. after we kind of talk about a lot of like heavy or scientific stuff to just kind of lighten it up. So our question for you today is if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be and what would you do? It would definitely be Questlove. I play drums, which is really embarrassing because no one in my family wants to hear me play drums. But man, if I could just wail like that, dude, he's so creative. It's Questlove. Yeah. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. And also if I could have an Afro, oof. I'd be yeah. way cooler than I am now and people would listen to me. <laughs> well, I think people listen to you already, but I I think that <laughs> so what you would do is is just play drums as Questlove so that you could finally yeah. be heard. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's so super cool that you play the drums at all. That's amazing. <laughs> that you'd want to jump into being a man for a day. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> that would Afro. be interesting. <laughs> I feel like that would be it nice. Would be. Totally different yeah. perspective. It's the exact opposite of who I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Except I, as a drummer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Except for you're both drummers. You've got mm-hmm. a lot in common. That, that, I think that's a bond there. Yeah. Thanks. I had never thought about that before. So thanks for Yeah. You're me. welcome. Well, we just had a delightful time and we just can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I'll just be texting you a bunch of pictures of rashes and uh, random questions from now on. So sorry. You can see those on Instagram, Laura. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. That was really fun. Awesome. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. So what'd you think? I want to know what you thought first. Oh, okay. Switching it up. All right. Well, I just think she's awesome. I, I wish she was my kid's pediatrician. She shoots it straight. She's like so approachable. She said, I'm very direct. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I just, I love what she's doing. I love that it's fascinating. I think we learned a lot overall. You even said to me like, you know, I don't know how much of this is going to apply. I don't have kids, but there were some kind of revolutionary things. I mean, this idea that depression can be felt different by people with trauma, that genes can be changed, that illnesses can happen from trauma. I mean, I think we knew that in a way, but not that this is scientifically proven at this point. Correct. I think she's such a rock star. And she owns her badassery, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah, yeah. But I really learned a lot today. And like I think I told you when we were off air, I was I was not, I thought she was a very incredible human, but I didn't know what I could add to the conversation because mm-hmm. I do not have children. But I realized very quickly, I was once a child. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I still mean, am at times. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> everything, that's why we always ask in the beginning to people, what was your childhood like? Because it's like the foundation of everything. Exactly, exactly. And, and 
she really, really, I hope for the parents listening out there or, or soon to be mm-hmm. parents, you know what, I, you know where I learned a lot was when she was talking about the differences in a seven-year-old and a four-year-old where mm-hmm. a four-year-old, you could make a, something magic happen. Oh, there's a monster in the room. Poof. I, it's gone. Yeah, magic. Yeah. But with a seven-year-old, they have a more logical brain that's developed at that point. So they're like, mom, mm, yeah. you're not powerful <laughs> and, it, and it's fascinating because they have such they still have such an imagination so like they can still convince themselves in my daughter's case that there are mice in the vents that are trying to come and get her but <laughs> that anything that I, other than exterminating those mice there's like no other answer that i can give that's like or or some kind of video i can show her that's like i look this is mommy crawling through the vents because she's <laughs> just like not having it she's just like mm, no you we've been through this you are not in fact a witch even though i still think i am at times so 100%. I also really enjoyed the fact, and you pointed out that you love this too, that she's affiliated with gender-affirming care yeah. facility for young kids. And I just think it's it's so wonderful that she's so open to that and because it's such a hot topic right now. I mean, I think it's in people, even her, she's mentioned that she's like, you know, sometimes I get kind of confused. Like, I don't know the, the lingo for certain things, so it's good to have a clinic or, or other specialist to refer to. And I like that she's honest about that. Doesn't try to like pretend that she's hip right. with it because I think it's a struggle for all of us to kind of keep up with what's going on. Well, like I said, I'm in the damn community and I'm like LGBTQIA plus big bird. Like what else are we going <laughs> to add into this fucking litany of, you know, <laughs> we're all, sp- you're all special. Everyone is special. No matter who you love, no matter how you identify, you are special. Yes. You're the plus. I guess we're all we all need a letter. We're all pluses. Yeah, we're all pluses. <laughs> there are no there are no minuses yeah. in the LGBT, okay? There there is yeah. no minuses. We're not but anyway, I, out. No, absolutely not. It is an inclusive community, uh, hopefully. Yeah. I really really appreciated that. I also I just thought her I had no idea about the ace Yes, which I was like, I've read about several times and it's actually something that we were going to talk about with Michael Unbroken because he actually brought it up in his book, but just for time, it didn't work out. But it's a fascinating concept. It really can determine a lot of things in your life. And, you know, for anybody out there that has, thinks that they went through some pretty trying times as a child, I would highly recommend to go to the link, we'll put it in the show notes to take the test because it could explain a lot of things or 100%. it could also just, yeah. So you know more about yourself. Right. And if you're just listening to this and you're like, I'm not going to go to your show notes and, and click on that. If you want to just Google it yourself, it's adverse childhood experiences or ACE test. There's, and for children, it's called PEARLS, P-E-A-R-L-S. That's the abbreviation. And I don't remember what she said, but it's in the podcast. <laughs> go back and listen to that part. Go back and listen to that part. too lazy to go to the show notes, go back, rewind. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Figure it out. What a fascinating human. And what a, she just felt, you know, she felt cool. Like yeah. she was just, she's like, you remember in Mean Girls where she, where I'm the Amy cool Poehler's mom. Like, I'm a cool mom. I'm not I'm a regular cool mom. I'm a cool mom. Yeah. She's like, I'm not a regular pediatrician. I'm a, I'm a cool pediatrician. But she like actually pedi- is. <laughs> pediatrician next door, you know? Yeah. We can't thank Dr. Wendy Hunter enough for coming on the program. And before we get out of here, Laura, we have the question of the day for you. If you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? And what would you do? Well, so. I've been struggling with this one because it's like, Mm -hmm. there's a million people that I would just because the mere fact of first person came to mind was like Beyonce. I want that voice. Oh my God. I want that talent. I want whatever God. Oh, so you would, you would have all of her abilities too. Yeah. So you would, and then you just, you get to feel what it's like to perform one of her shows. I would. Well, that's cool because you're going to see her. I know. And I think that's probably why it was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm so jealous. I'm going to see you on Saturday. Oh my Um, gosh. But yeah, I just think that that would be amazing. But then at the same time, I'm also like, even if I had to be like kind of in a person that I'm not a fan, like Elon Musk's body, I would still do it just to like go to space for a day. Oh, and come back. Yeah. yeah. Just experience yeah. it. But I wouldn't want to like talk to anybody or have people throw eggs at me or something. Right. Which is what I assume his daily life is like. It's probably not at all. <laughs> Going to space and having eggs thrown on him. How about you, Todd? I, <laughs> I was really do? trying to think about this. I was like, would I want to be someone like Amber Heard? 
Oh my God, why? <laughs> and just, just see what it's like to be, you know, completely Hated. ripped from human society and yeah. like <laughs> have to change your name and, and move away. No, and I really, I've thought about this. I don't think I'd be a person. I think I'd want to f- experience what it would be like to be like a cartoon. And I feel like I'd want to oh. be Piglet. Oh my gosh, I was not <laughs> expecting that. Piglet. Mm. Piglet, yeah, because Piglet, he's like the, I've never known what it's like to be timid. And he's a little timid and he's a little, you know, he tries to be brave and on occasion conquers his fears. I just would like to see what it is. I'm Piglet. You know, I just would love that. Okay. I don't know yeah. why, because I'm five. No, I literally, one of the things I thought about was like, well, wouldn't I kind of just like to be my daughter, like seven and have no responsibilities or, oh or my God. worry about taxes or worry about bills or any of it. Right. She says all the time, I want to be a grown up. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Take it back. No, you <laughs> Enjoy your life. Enjoy that popsicle by the pool and just yes. live your best life. You know, you've got food coming for you. You've got luxury and fabulous pool days and playgrounds and friends well, and, and slumber what, parties. Well, and, the thing too yeah. is some of the things that she sees is like negatives or, or things that she can't have in life. I'm like, no, I want that now. I wish somebody would tell me to go to bed. I wish somebody <laughs> would be like, it's nap time. It's time to calm down and rest. I would love that. <laughs> and she's like, this is oppressive. I want to be able to stay up too late and feel like crap in the morning. It's like, no, you don't. Oh, Isabel. Well, Laura, as always, it is such a pleasure to see you. We thank Dr. Wendy Hunter for coming on the program. Yeah. Yeah. Always pleasure to see you. And until next time. Sounds great. All right. See ya. Bye. 